What I want to talk about briefly is the doctrine of perspicuity. Okay, perspicuity. Uh, my my father-in-law would have said that that is a, a $10 word <laughs> because all it really means is, is clarity. And when we're talking about it as a, as a doctrine, what it is telling us is everything that the Bible needs to tell us is sufficiently clear. So if you pick up your Bible and you read it through, you're going to find out about Jesus. You're going to find out about sin. You're going to find about, out about what you need to do to get saved. All those things are sufficiently clear. But that also means there are some other things in Scripture that aren't sufficiently clear. There are some things that, that when you read them, no matter how many times you read them, you're probably not going to be able to understand them without a little help. And I think this passage that we have come to this morning is one of those passages. As I studied it this week, it reminded me a little bit of when I had to read William Faulkner in high school. Anybody have to do that? I remember reading the books, you know, the pages, they flipped, and the words, they went into my head, and, uh, but I had no idea what was going on until I came to class, and the teacher broke it down point by point to tell me how the story fit together. But with that said, just because things are more complicated, just because things are difficult to understand, it doesn't mean we should skip them. It doesn't mean we should pass over them, right? Nobody... Uh, would, would argue that uh, Faulkner is more, is Faulkner is easier to read than, than The Hunger Games, right? It, it's harder. But everybody would tell you that Faulkner is more important literature. It's more significant and meaningful than The Hunger Games. And it's the same here with this passage. Even though it's difficult, it's worth the effort because there's something in it for us. We're going to see some strange stuff. Rams, goats horns, angels. But once we get past that, once we figure out where that's pointing us, you'll find out there is an important message here for us today. There's an important message for us about how we can deal with the struggles in this world, how we can deal with the pressures that face us in everyday life. So that's what we're going to do this morning. First, we're just going to pick it apart. We're going to look at this vision we're going to figure out what it meant. We're going to look at the historical realities behind what we just read. And then once we do that, we're going to see the lesson of history and the promise of history. Okay? The lesson of history and the promise of history. So here we are. Um, like I said, out of context, this stuff seems like a bunch of nonsense. Right? You read it. I'm sure you stood there and listened to me and watched the words go by, but it wasn't obvious at all what it was talking about. But it's what it was interesting for me this week as I, I studied the text, I found out that this passage, chapter 8 of Daniel, might be the most specific prophecy in all of Scripture. It might be the one that has been most obviously fulfilled. In fact, it is so specific that critics of the Bible cannot accept it because it would have to be a miracle to be this accurate. It would be along the lines of finding something written by Mozart that tells us Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton were running for election this year and then predicting the outcome. 
People have a hard time. You know, actually, that would be, I kind of like to read that apocalypse, right? A, one like a donkey and an elephant come from the north. The elephant with tiny baby hands. I don't know. Um, anyway, <laughs> this is a very accurate vision. So why is it so accurate? Well, we're going to look at it. I want to remind you, we are in a different genre here. This is called apocalypse. And apocalypse is unlike anything we have today. It uses vivid, symbolic imagery of strange things to communicate a message. So as we walk through it, I want you to try to to get there with me. I want you to try to visualize this stuff. Remember that these are this is an experience God wants us to have as we run through this text. So we're starting again in the kingdom of Babylon. Three years into the reign of Belshazzar, that means this is before the writing on the wall passage we studied a few weeks ago. It's before the Daniel uh, dealing with the lion's den. We're back in time before Darius and the Medes have come in the reign of Babylon, and, and Daniel has a vision. In his vision, he is standing in Babylon, and he sees a ram. And this ram has two horns, and one horn is is longer than the other. But we don't have to guess what this means. It tells us. Verse 20, it tells us this is the kingdoms of Media and Persia. And the longer horn is the Persian Empire because it was the stronger of the two. And this ram, it charges everywhere. It conquers everything and it becomes great. But then Daniel looks and he sees a goat. And this goat has a horn between its two eyes, and it comes in from the west. And verse 21, again, we don't have to guess. It tells us this is Greece. And this, this goat comes charging in from the west, and he comes so fast that he looks like he's flying. His feet don't even touch the ground. And he kills that ram. Now, history tells us that this is pretty much exactly what happened. Maybe you recall this from school yourself, but Alexander the Great, around 334 BC, in a period of about three years, conquered the largest empire that the world had ever seen. He was swift, he was powerful, he built a great kingdom unlike there had ever been before. But at the height of his power, Alexander the Great died at the age of 33. And they split up the kingdom into four different generals who were underneath them. And that's what verse 8 tells us. It says, Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it there came out four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. And out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great. So from these four kingdoms, there comes one little horn that is exceedingly great. He expands his part of the empire and does terrible damage to the people of God. When we read the passage, it talked talked about him desecrating the sanctuary, about him taking away the offering for 2,300 days or about seven years. Now, we know in retrospect that this figure is a real person. This is someone named Antiochus IV Epiphanes. He was the king of one of those little regions that came out of the Greek empire. It was called the Seleucid Empire. And he tried to make his kingdom great. He tried to unify his kingdom by making people follow the Greek cultural practices. That was his idea. 
And that meant he banned circumcision. It meant he ended sacrifices in the Jewish temple. He, in fact, even went in there and deliberately defiled the altar by burning pig flesh on it. And he took cultic images from the worship of Zeus and he put them inside the Holy of Holies. He burned copies of scripture and people who claimed to be faithful to God, he had them killed. So this is who we're dealing with. But verse 25, towards the end of our passage, it says, By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. And he shall be broken, but by no human hand. He says that this person is going to rise up against the prince of princes. He's going to rise up against God himself. And that guy, his name, Epiphanes, was a name that Antiochus chose for himself. That name meant God made manifest. So he, he very literally went to war with God, but in, uh, he, he said that he was God made manifest. But of course he wasn't. <laughs> and in 164 BC, he also suddenly died. So the chapter wraps up like this. And I, Daniel, was overcome And I lay sick for some days. And then I rose, and I went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision, and I did not understand it. So Daniel sees this stuff, and he is sick. He is devastated by the things that he saw. But eventually he gets back to work. He says that, that he's appalled by it, and he doesn't understand it. That last bit, that might be the most relatable verse in the whole, in the whole passage, right? I didn't understand it. So, so what do we do? We, we have these facts now. What are we supposed to do with this history? What is the lesson for us from this history? You know, especially when you consider Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus four Epiphanes, right? He is long in the rearview mirror of history. I'm guessing that most of us in this room had not heard of him before today. So why is this here? Why did God choose to put this in his word to be studied, to be reflected on for thousands of years after the fact? Uh, A movie that I really like is Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Has anybody seen that one? It's a good movie. It stars Jim Carrey. It's... Um, if you ever watch it, though, you'll find out that it is kind of a strange film. When you, at first, it is this barrage of scenes that seem to come in no particular order. Um, you're not quite sure what's going on. And uh, maybe 20, 30 minutes into the movie, you come to find out that these scenes, many of them are memories taking place inside the mind of the main character. And then, the further you go along, you slowly start to piece them together and understand the plot line. Well, I was talking to David Richter, who's the pastor of our Somerville congregation, and he shared with me an interview um, one of the people involved with the film had given when it came out. And he said, yeah, it's a confusing movie. If you rent it, it'll probably take you a little while to understand. He's like, but if you go in knowing this one fact, that the movie is about broken relationships... It'll help you to get it from the outset. It's about broken relationships. And weirdly enough, I think that applies well to this passage too. 
Because if we zoom out just a little bit, if we step back and look at this chapter, you start to realize this chapter is telling us a timeless story. It is telling us a story about the broken relationship between man and God. Think about it this way, okay? Here you have these empires, and they are tremendously powerful. They are led by these ambitious men who are bent on conquering the world, on subduing it to themselves, of making a name for themselves. These emperors, they're, they're acting like God. Some of them are literally calling themselves God. And at one level, all humanity acts this way. At some level, every single one of us has this instinct within us. We, by nature, reject the authority of God and we try to assert our own to varying degrees of success, right? We are people who delude ourselves into believing in the illusion of our own power, in the illusion of our own control. I mean, why do you think it is that we are so obsessed today with, with fitness, right? Why is it that at this very moment, there are people that will probably drop a bunch of weights on top of us before I'm done with the sermon? Why is it that, that we have made fitness such a big deal? Why is it that, that we are so obsessed with retirement planning? You know, why do we want to make sure we have years and years and years to go after we're done working? Why are we so often looking to science, to cure every last disease, right? To, to find a cure for Alzheimer's and cancer before we get to the place where we have to face it. Is it not because we're hoping we can control our own lives? Is it not because we're hoping that we're going to be the first generation to, to call the shots in the end? To, to, to be the ones who have the power? But look at this image. Even the greatest of us, even the most powerful of us, are powerless before God. Verse 24, it says, His power shall be great, but not by his own power. It says that even these great men, their power is not theirs to control. Their lives are not truly their own. And neither is yours. But our self-assertion, our independence, our sin, it has broken our relationship with God. And so rather than run to God's power, rather than run to the one whose kingdom will never end, rather than trust in his Kingship, we try to build our own. And so that's the first lesson here. Sin leads us to reject God's authority. But there is no man or woman on earth who will ever have the final say. That's the first thing. But secondly, uh, we find out here in verse 12 that this broken relationship it affects us on every level. So this broken relationship is not just about the bad people out there 
who are doing bad things. But, but it's the people in here as well. Verse 12, it says, it's talking about all these terrible things that are going to happen when this little horn comes into power. And it says, and a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. That's what I want you to think about. It says because of transgression. It says that this time of persecution will be because God's people have transgressed. That this spiritual battle that's taking place is not only in the lives of people who have rejected God, but it's even in the lives of people who look towards him. And if you've ever read the Old Testament, you know, you see this cycle come up over and over again, don't you? That there is obedience, and then there is sin. Then there is judgment, and then there is repentance. And then there is obedience, and then there is sin. And it goes over and over and over again. These people constantly following God and rejecting God. Following God and rejecting God. The very people who you expect in the Bible to be the most faithful are the least faithful. They're the ones who are constantly turning away from him. Do you remember the story of the Ten Commandments? I mean, I think all of us are familiar with the Ten Commandments, right? The the basic moral law that God has given, the, the revelation of what it means to be holy. But do you remember the story of, of when he first gave them to his people? Do you remember the preface to the Ten Commandments? The verse that, that comes right before it. Do you remember that before he gave the Ten Commandments, God gave them a reminder of his love. God gave his people a reminder of his faithfulness and his commitment towards them. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The Ten Commandments begin by recounting God's awesome deliverance of his people, by reminding them of his steadfast love towards them. It begins with this refresher, a memory that they they should have tangible proof that God would never abandon them, that God would never leave them behind. The Ten Commandments start with a reminder, reminder of God's faithfulness towards them. But if you read the story of the Exodus, you know that before he can even read that verse, <laughs> before Moses can even read that line to them, when he comes down the mountain, where are the people? They're worshiping idols. They've already turned away. The people who should be the most faithful are the quickest to leave him behind. And it's not just them, right? As Christians, the Christians in this room, I want to address you for a second. Is it not the same situation in your life? That over and over again, we see this cycle play out. That even though we have known God's grace, we are quick to turn from him. Why is that? Well, it's because as this vision shows us, There is more going on behind the scenes. This shows us that that we actually have an enemy. And that left to our own strength, we are outmatched. Left to our own strength, we are outmatched by the world, the flesh, and the devil. 
I was talking to uh, a friend of mine the other day who's a father. His son is, is college age. And they were having a conversation. Um, and the son was, was just kind of lamenting over some of the things he was struggling with. He was, he was really struggling with having all these internet-connected devices around him all the time, having phones and tablets and computers, and, and just the constant connection was leading him often to go looking for things he shouldn't have been looking at. And he felt trapped by it. And he said to his dad, he said, you know, the problem is I just need to be more committed. And his dad responded by saying, that's not the problem. You're plenty committed. The problem is you're weak. We're weak. You can't do it yourself just by trying harder. By yourself, you are outmatched. When Daniel finishes seeing all this stuff, it tells us that he's physically ill. I think that's because he was finally able to see what is, has always been going on. He was reminded of something that is true, that this world is more than what it seems. And we forget that a lot, don't we? Especially in a place like Boston, where for the most part, life is comfortable, or at least tolerable. When we have problems, the stresses, the concerns that we face day to day, they're things that we, we think we can handle them on our own, don't we? We can forget very easily that our reality is intensely spiritual in its nature. And that means it's not simply difficult for you. It's not simply difficult to be the kind of person you want to be. It's not simply difficult for you to be attentive or to be loving or to be kind or to be more disciplined with your day. Or for you Christians, it's not simply difficult for you to share the gospel with your neighbors. It's not simply difficult for you to build a godly marriage. It's not just difficult for you to gain victory over your sinful nature. No, Scripture tells us that we live in a spiritual reality where the relationship between God and man is broken. And it's a reality that affects us at every level. We are profoundly outmatched by the forces that wage war against us. It's like First Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. That's the lesson from this history. That's what Daniel sees. When, when Daniel has that curtain pulled back, when he sees the forces that are really at work, He's ill. It makes him sick. That's what we're up against. That's what we're facing. The end. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding, right? That would be awful. If that was the end of the story, what would we do? That news would be crushing. But of course it's not, right? There is also a promise in this history. There's, there's something more for us here. Look at that last verse. It says, And I, Daniel, was overcome, and I lay sick for some days, but then I rose, and I went about the king's business. So Daniel, after all of this, he gets back up, 
and he goes about the king's business. How can he do that? How can we do this? How, how can we go on when the curtain's been pulled back? How can we go on when we come face to face with the real evil at work in this world? You know, I've known a lot of people over the years who can't. I've known a lot of people over the years who, who draw the line right there. You know, I had a friend who was a, a, a professor. Uh, he was a pastor. He was a Bible scholar. And one day he turned on the news and he saw the story of some devastating mudslide that killed hundreds of people. And something about it just hit him. All that suffering. All that pain. All that evil. He saw the brokenness. He saw the, the curtain pulled back and he left his faith behind. How can we go on? How can we go on about the king's business when we are faced with our own failure? When we're faced with our own evil? Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're in that place this morning where you are just so discouraged by your own sin. You can relate to those people who were with Moses. The people who saw the greatness of God but kept turning away from him anyway. Maybe... You've been wrestling with the same sin for years. And every time you think you've won, every time you think you finally got a victory, it creeps back up. Maybe you find yourself this morning wondering, why am I not better by now? Maybe you think, I don't, I don't think God wants me anywhere around him. <laughs> I must be such a disappointment. Well, Daniel... In this moment, he was, he was facing that kind of despair. He was laying sick for days, but he found courage in the future hope that God was going to win victory over all this brokenness. He found courage in the future hope that in the end, God was going to win. And scripture tells us that you and I, we're in a lot better position than Daniel was. The book of Hebrews tells us that, that men and women like Daniel believed in a future promise. But we, this side of Christ, have seen it fulfilled. You see, this rebellion against God, all this evil and all this suffering and all this pain and all this brokenness in the world, it reached its climax at the cross. And the gospel shows us that we have a God who has experienced both sides of this broken relationship. We have a God who, in the person of Jesus Christ, has entered into the suffering that we feel. He's entered into the pain. He has experienced all the difficulties of this life. He has been tempted in every way. He's suffered with us in order to redeem us. But humanity, in its ultimate expression of rebellion, in the ultimate example of that broken relationship we see here, when God came, we killed him. But through that rebellion, God has brought victory. In that moment on the cross, 
Christ bore the penalty for all of our sins. And not only that, by his death, by his resurrection, he won the ultimate victory over Satan, over sin, over death. When he rose from the dead, he broke that little horn and he broke all the other little horns that were ever going to come after it. You see, what we should see in the cross this morning is that the cross is the assurance that there is no evil great enough to defeat our Jesus. And if that's the case, if that really is the case, that there's no evil great enough to defeat our Jesus, then that means there is no sin in your life big enough to outrun his grace. And so, if you find yourself there this morning, if you find yourself in that place like Daniel, where you are just stunned, where you are stunned by the evil in this world, where you are stunned by the power the enemy has, that's where we got to look. We got to look to the cross. Look to the cross and remember that in that moment, he has paid for all your sins, past, present, and future. Look to the cross and, and remember that as much as you hate the evil in this world, he hates it more. Because he has felt it. He has experienced it. There is not a moment of evil in this world that goes by unnoticed by him. There is never a time where he is distracted or unaware of your pain. And there is never a moment where he has lost his commitment to make things right. We need to look to the cross and remember that, that while the battles wage on, the war is over. Christ, the King, has won the victory. We need to look to the cross finally this morning. We need to look at this table and repent. And move on and get back to the king's business. Let's pray.